thank you, Rick, for your uh, very kind invitation and uh, uh, introduction, and good afternoon, everyone. And uh, very glad to be back to uh, Columbus. I just realized uh, uh, that Columbus actually is the sister city of Hefei. Hefei is the capital city of Anhui province, where is uh, actually my hometown. So I feel, you know, uh, now I feel, uh, coming home. Uh, based in Washington, now, you know, uh, uh, this is homecoming. Uh, my talk today is about uh, China's new diplomacy in the 21st century uh, with a focus on the new thinking and practice um, uh, in it. Um, many people have noticed uh, that in the last several years, uh, Chinese diplomacy has become more active and sophisticated. Uh, uh, which, to some extent, is true. And on the other hand, this is also an ongoing process. Uh, there are still a lot of debate uh, going on in China regarding the uh, posture and orientation of Chinese foreign policy, uh, regarding the role that China should play in this region uh, and also in the world, and uh, uh, regarding China's relations with the major powers and its neighbors. So as this uh, uh, debate uh, uh, keep, keeps going, uh, our foreign policy will uh, uh, undergo more uh, uh, interesting uh, uh, developments in the years ahead. And uh, um, basically, I want to talk about three things today. Uh, one is what's the background of these uh, uh, changes with China's new, uh, 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 with the rise of China's new diplomacy uh, uh, in the last several years. And secondly, uh, to sh sh shed light on uh, some of the debates that has been going on in the last several years of China's diplomacy. And uh, uh, thirdly, what are the new thinking and uh, practice uh, that have already emerged in our diplomacy? Uh, first, about background, uh, very briefly, I think about uh, three factors contributed to China's new diplomacy. Uh, number one uh, has to do with uh, China's economic integration into the international econo uh, economy. China joined WTO in the year 2000, at, at the end of 2001, actually. And uh, today, I think China's, uh, the international trade accounts for almost 65% of China's GDP. I think the highest uh, 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 dependence uh, uh, compared with other countries, uh, be it US or Japan or, uh, or Germany. So as China's economy is so deeply integrated into the international economy, uh, this has caused uh, uh, China to think about the relations with the outside world because it's no longer fierce, it's, you know, is uh, outside of the international system, but rather very much part of it. What does this mean uh, uh, for China's uh, international relations and for China's diplomacy? And the second factor is, uh, as China uh, grows in its material power and uh, rises in its international influence, the outside world uh, begins to play higher expectations on China for the role that China should play uh, in this region and even more broadly in other parts of the world. Uh, and, uh, uh, and this, of course, has caused China to rethink about its role uh, in international affairs in the 21st century. 
and the uh, third and the largest uh, uh, factor is uh, ethnic changes and developments uh, that have been created by globalization and regionalization uh, uh, in the last 10 years also uh, have been driven uh, 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 some uh, 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 have given rise to the uh, uh, challenges to China's diplomacy which we have to face and confront uh, uh, in the new century. Many things that used to seem to be remote uh, to China or, or, or irrelevant to China, today they are actually very much on China's national agenda, uh, our foreign policy agenda. We have to face those challenges. So all these three factors combined have been driven the uh, uh, debate and thinking about Chinese diplomacy in this uh, new century. Now, second, uh, to share with you uh, 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 my impression about the uh, debate in China about our, our foreign policy. The first debate was uh, this kind of notion, uh, peaceful rise of China. Uh, two or three years ago, uh, within the uh, uh, academic and policy uh, circle in China, there was a, 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 a premise that China could pursue uh, a a road of development different from other major powers since the 15th century. That means China can uh, rise to a major power status without uh, 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 resorting to the use of force as a major uh, means for its uh, uh, development. And uh, uh, the people who advocate for this uh, notion or theory believe uh, this is possible. The rise of China, uh, peaceful rise of China, is possible because one today China can take advantage of globalization, so that you can get access to international market and natural resources without using force to get them as other major powers did in the past, especially you know in the 20th century and in the 19th century. So really, globalization has presented the opportunity to China. So you don't have to use military force uh, 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 to get there. And also, uh, people believe this has to do with uh, uh, the Chinese culture uh, uh, and history, because in the modern time, China basically suffered from, uh, uh, in the hands of Japan and the Western powers. When you know they were rising in terms of their national capability, they tried to expand the uh, uh, spheres of, of influence. So China became the victim of that kind of major power game in the 19th century and early 20th century. And, uh, and uh, drawing on these this, uh, painful experiences, China is not going to do the same uh, uh, with our neighbors, trying to you know, uh, dominate them or trying to get the, our sphere of influence. And of course, also, because this is 21st century, and the nature of international politics is also uh, uh, evolving and has become more uh, uh, civilized, uh, progressive. So even though you still have scholars talking about the tragedy of major power politics, but more liberal and progressive view is that uh, uh, today major powers can avoid a major a war among themselves. Uh, they are smarter, they are more capable to, 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 to manage relations among themselves. So a peaceful rise of China uh, is, is possible and also is in China's interest. And then uh, you have people in China 
who oppose this kind of notion about the peaceful rise of China uh, for different reasons. One, some people have the problem with the word rise because the rise in the Chinese lexicon that refers to you know the uh, a sudden and abrupt uh, increase in your power over a very short period of time, overnight, you know, within one year or two. So that sounds very threatening. They said this is not good. You know, you will make your our small neighbors very nervous when you know many countries are talking about China's threat. You talk about your rise, so you just play into the hands of those countries. And another group of people who have the problem with peaceful, they think, you know, if you look at the history of all the major powers since the uh, 15th or 16th century, you know, they all use military means as a major approach to the rise, uh, 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 to the uh, 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 search for major power status, including the United States. You know, World War One, World War Two really contributed to U.S. ascension to uh, world power uh, status. Uh, whether China uh, um, can avoid this kind of uh, uh, pattern of behavior um, is, is an open question. And also, they said, you know, uh, even though China has a peaceful intention, then maybe other major powers do not want to see uh, China's rise to a major power status. They will try to constrain China to contain China, whatever. And finally, some conflict is inevitable. So you cannot, you know, uh, 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 be uh, allured by this kind of wishful thinking that as you are uh, uh, peaceful oriented, finally, uh, uh, there will be no conflict among the major powers. And also, you have people ask, you know, what does this mean when you say peaceful? Does that mean no use of military force at all? or 10% use of force, or 30% use of force. If, if Taiwan decides to declare independence, then are we going to use all the means, including force, to, to, you know, to solve this issue? So if we are you know, committed to peaceful rights, then it sounds some, somehow you bind your hands in advance so that when the challenges uh, uh, arise and uh, may uh, uh, require the use of force, you're kind of, you know, uh, safe, uh, disarmed. So this debate uh, 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 went on for a while, and uh, uh, I think finally the leadership in China decided to abandon the uh, uh, slogan of peaceful rise, but rather use the word peaceful development, because they think rise is, sounds like in Chinese lexicon too threatening but they still use, um, of course, stick to peaceful. So we call the peaceful development of China as a, as a world power, a, a major power in the uh, 21st century. The second debate is about the posture of China diplomacy uh, in the 21st century. In the wake of Kiananmen and the collapse of the Eastern uh, European and Soviet Union, at that time our leader, uh, Deng Xiaoping, <laughs> He gave uh, uh, advice for China's diplomacy that, that, you know, with the collapse of those countries, China should avoid taking the lead, confronting the United States in the post-Cold War world. We should keep our low profile, just concentrate on our internal development, and then, you know, uh, uh, don't uh, uh, take too much burden internationally. So that, was, that has been observed over the past, you know, 15 or 16 years. But then in the last several years, you have some people to question about, you know, 
whether China should continue to take a low uh, profile uh, on the international stage or we should take a more active, higher profile in international affairs. Uh, those people uh, uh, support for a change of, of the profile suggest uh, uh, mainly uh, uh, two reasons. That one, since China's economy has so uh, deeply integrated with the international economy, China has to be more active on the international stage so as to promote and, uh, and protect China's national interests. You cannot rely on other countries to promote your uh, uh, economic interests, be it in Africa, you know, East, Middle East, or, or Southeast Asia. Now, you have to do something by yourself uh, 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 through your active diplomacy to promote your national interests. And also, uh, they realize that as China rises in terms of its material power, other countries will call on China to do more, to take more uh, burdens for international peace and security. And for example, when the North Korean nuclear issue comes up, you know, U.S., Japan will, will push China uh, to play a more active role. And you cannot tell them, you know, don't bother me, I just want to, you know, keep a low profile. It's impossible. You know, you have to do something to show you are a responsible uh, country. So these are the uh, uh, reasons for people who call a uh, 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 different posture of our diplomacy. And then you have the people who are against this. They say, you know, uh, economic growth will remain, uh, 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 is the number one priority of China, and it will remain to be so on our national agenda for the foreseeable future. So China should still uh, be inward looking, focusing, uh, concentrating on its internal affairs. Uh, don't pay much, too much attention and devote too much, uh, too many resources to international affairs. Uh, we are not yet at that stage. And also, they said, you know, uh, if you want to do more, then that means you you have to take a, a, a large burden. And uh, China is still a developing country. We cannot afford. Um, too big an international burden. Uh, so these are the people who suggest we should stay, uh, remain on the track to keep a, 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 a low profile. Um, this debate, although is still very much going on, but as I will come back to this, uh, my impression is that uh, we have realized that it is inevitable for China to play a more active role in re both regional and international affairs. And this is also, this is in China's interest, but also in the interest of the, of the region, uh, and also uh, uh, for international uh, peace and uh, stability. Uh, the third debate is about the focus, uh, uh, the centerpiece of China diplomacy. In the 1990s, uh, the centerpiece of our diplomacy was relations with the major powers, uh, particularly with the United States. Uh, the reason was that after the, end of, after the end of Cold War, there was a readjustment among uh, uh, all the major powers in terms of their relations. So China worked hard to develop different kinds of partnerships with all the major powers, the United States, Japan, European Union, Russia, you know, all these countries. And the uh, U.S. Uh, relation with the United States was actually the centerpiece of our diplomacy. Uh, uh, you all recall, you know, after chairman, the U.S. sanctioned in China. So it took almost seven or eight years 
for U.S. China relations to be renormalized, uh, uh, marked by the exchange of summit visits between uh, uh, President Jiang from China and President Clinton from the United States in 1997-1998. So throughout the 1990s, China's diplomacy was very much devoted to relations with major powers. And then in the last several years, uh, some scholars in China suggested now we should shift the stress of uh, diplomacy to relations with, uh, with our neighbors uh, for mainly two reasons. One, because now East Asia is promoting regional economic integration and even for East Asian community building. That means now you, should, you have to devote more resources and attention to relations with your neighbors. And secondly, after September 11th, we realized that you know, the likelihood of, of wars among the major powers is very low. Why your neighbors, especially some countries, are not running very well could have a big impact on U.S. security. For example, you know, Afghanistan, before September 11th, before the U.S. war in Afghanistan, you know, many of the terrorists in China's northwest part were trained by Taliban. Then, you know, they came back to China. And today, even, even though, you know, Taliban is gone, but still, you know, today, Afghanistan stands as a major problem, as a major source of, of drugs, you know, now many drugs come to China and then to U.S., to Japan, you know, to Hong Kong. So these small countries on China's periphery could have a, a, a big impact on China. Of course, you, you look at North Korea, you know. Now it's a nuclear power. So China turned out to be a country living with most nuclear powers in the world. How many nuclear powers, nuclear neighbors we have now? Four, right? Russia, North Korea, uh, India, and Pakistan. Right? So uh, you would wake up in the midnight, think about this issue, and the, you cannot get, uh, you know, uh, asleep again, you know, even with four <laughs> nuclear powers, right? So relations with these neighbors are really important. And uh, uh, so that's, that's uh, 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 the uh, reasons for paying more attention to the uh, uh, relations with the neighbors. Uh, of course, uh, we also realize that relations with the major powers are still the key uh, to China's overall uh, international uh, activity. Uh, but uh, as I have seen it, certainly we have been shifting to uh, 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 building uh, uh, relations with our neighbors uh, in many uh, dimensions, which I will come back. And the last but not the least uh, debate is on our relations with Japan, uh, how to deal with Japan. Uh, um, um, I would say Japan uh, is one of the most difficult uh, uh, challenges facing China diplomacy uh, for roughly two reasons. One is that Japan is changing. The other is China is changing too. So when you two countries both are changing, uh, you have the problem how to you know, develop a, a new relationship between them. And from the Chinese perspective, uh, in the post-Cold War era, Japan has become more conservative politically um, in terms of political domestic politics and more uh, active uh, on the security front. Uh, Japan used to keep a low profile on security issues, but this has been changing in the last several years, especially after September 11th. And also more assertive diplomatically vis-a-vis -vis China and some of its neighbors, uh, including uh, uh, two Koreas and Russia. So 
how to deal with uh, Japan, you know, a different Japan that we know, uh, we were familiar in the past several decades. And one school suggests that, you know, uh, maybe we should somehow get rid of the history issue and to promote cooperation with Japan on, you know, other issues of, of interest related, economic cooperation, energy cooperation, security cooperation, so that, you know, we can lay a more new foundation for relation with Japan to make sure that Japan will not just, you know, be one direction oriented. That means, you know, U.S. oriented, you know, to drive, the, uh, to drive Japan totally, you know, into the arms of the United States. But then you have another group suggested, you know, you know, history is always important because what happened between our two countries. And also that's the political foundation of the two countries. We used to have an understanding on this issue. But Japan, you know, driven by its conservatism, they wanted to revisit this issue. And that erode the political foundation between our two countries. And also because the history issue is always emotional at the public level. So given the strong public opinion in China, so it's impossible for our leaders, you know, if the Japanese leader visit uh, Yasukuni Shirai and China wouldn't see anything, then you can imagine what kind of uh, uh, reaction from the Chinese public uh, on this issue. So uh, I guess the conclusion is that history remains important, but we should try to somehow, you know, put them in the, in, in, in the right uh, 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 perspective. At the same time, we should try to broaden areas of cooperation uh, between our two countries. Uh, so uh, that's about Japan. So with that, I will move to the uh, 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 last part about the new thinking uh, 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 um, and practice in our diplomacy. Uh, many of the new thinking came out of the debating that I have already uh, highlighted. I think the first one is uh, China's growing uh, enthusiasm with multilateralism. Uh, um, uh, in its diplomacy. For a long time, China was very um, cautious and suspicious of multilateral institutions, as many other major powers are. You know, major powers don't let this kind of multilateral institutions constrain their uh, uh, flexibility and, uh, you know, uh, 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 capabilities. And China, uh, in particular, is the case, because uh, for a long time, China was outside of the international system. So it was not familiar with this kind of multilateral institutions. And uh, some developments in the late, 1990s, uh, 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 late 1990s and early 21st century really you know, shaped our mentality about uh, um, desirability of multilateral institutions. And uh, today we come to realize that multilateralism is important because in the era of globalization, Many issues have to be resolved through multilateral approaches. It cannot be resolved unilaterally or multilaterally uh, or bilaterally. And also, we began to realize actually, multilateral institutions provide a useful uh, platform for China to uh, promote its international influence, both in this region and also, you know, within the United Nations and other. Uh, international uh, uh, multilateral framework. And uh, one more reason is that when the U.S. seemed to be running unilateral in the last several years, maybe multilateralism is a useful way 
to somehow constrain the U.S. unilateralism, especially within the United Nations. You know, uh, people point to Iraq war and all these kind of things uh, suggested, uh, well, you know, we have to make efforts to bring uh, Americans back uh, 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 to the track of multilateralism. And of course, the six-part talks is one example. So that is the exact case that U.S. agreed to uh, resort to uh, uh, a multilateral approach to this issue, and also uh, within the United Nations. So uh, China's enthusiasm uh, uh, with multilateralism is not is not a tactical adjustment, as someone uh, suspected, but rather as a result of a strategic learning, both conceptually and also uh, uh, practically over the last uh, 10 years. And, and the second uh, 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 new thinking would be uh, uh, regionalism in East Asia. As I mentioned earlier on, uh, today East Asian countries are devoted to promote regional integration and institutionalization. And uh, if, we, uh, if we compare with uh, uh, Europe and North America, East Asia lags far behind in terms of uh, regionalization uh, and regional uh, uh, institution building. It was after the Asian financial crisis in 1997-98 that East Asian countries realized the importance of pushing for uh, uh, regional cooperation. And also, different countries in this region have different priorities. For China, I think today we have two priorities. Uh, in terms of East Asian regionalism. Uh, one is uh, ASEAN plus three, that means 10 ASEAN countries plus China, uh, Japan, and South Korea. And we want to use this as a major channel to promote regional economic cooperation and finally to build our East Asian community. So this is one uh, 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 focus of our uh, 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 efforts. The other is uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization that China, uh, Russia, and other four Central Asian countries formed in uh, uh, 2001, just three months before September 11th, actually. Uh, this organization was originally created to deal with uh, security uh, challenges in Central Asia. Uh, we call it the, the axis of evil, uh, terrorism, separatism and uh, uh, extremism. But gradually, we agreed to, you know, to expand to cooperation in terms of economic cooperation, energy cooperation, uh, social cultural cooperation, and also political cooperation. So today, we are moving in the direction of turning this into a permanent functional uh, regional institutions uh, 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 and with a comprehensive uh, um, scope of function. And now we have other countries like uh, Mongolia, Afghanistan, India, Pakistan, and Iran as observers to the institutions. Some of these countries, they want to join this organization as former members. But at this stage, there is an understanding that we want to further uh, develop the institutionalization of Shanghai Cooperation Organization before we are admitting uh, new members. And I recall last year when the Shanghai Cooperation Organization had its summit. There is an annual summit. Last year's summit was held in Shanghai in China. So uh, um, the president of Iran attended it as an observer. So Washington pressured China very hard to make sure 
that Iran will not be admitted to a member of this organization, which of course wouldn't be the case. Um, but but there was a concern uh, here in the United States. So uh, um, these two uh, uh, regional institutions, uh, in the long term, uh, uh, will serve as a major approach for China to promote uh, East Asian uh, regionalism. Uh, the third new thinking is uh, what we call the major power diplomacy. Uh, as I mentioned uh, uh, earlier on, you know China pursued a low-key, low-profile diplomacy after end of, since the end of the Cold War. But now we gradually realize that you know when you are rising to a major power status, your diplomacy uh, sh should be commensurate uh, with your major power status. Uh, what does this mean? That means your diplomacy should be more active, not just you know uh, 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 reactive. Uh, uh, to be more active, not 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 just passive. I'm sorry, and you should take more initiatives on regional and international issues. Also, you should be more independent, not just follow other countries. You know, support or no support, uh, and uh, certainly it should be more creative. You should try to shape the current rather than, you know, react to it. Uh, either you can, you know, help create some new regional or in international institutions, or you should advocate for new norms for international politics that other countries uh, uh, would accept. So this is what we call the major power uh, diplomacy. And uh, certainly we think uh, six-party talks is one example that China has been playing a major role as as one a host, second, uh, uh, I would say, uh, uh, consensus maker, try to you know uh, negotiate with all the other five countries uh, for an agreement on this issue, and also we conducted very uh, active. Uh, 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 diplomacy among the five countries in trying how to bring a solution to this issue. Um, I recall in the week of North Korea nuclear test, and China spent, uh, 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 sent a special envoy to Washington and to Russia, and we, we, we achieved some consensus, and then we reopened six part talks. So in last uh, 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 February, uh, there was a new agreement and before that, the UN Security Council passed a resolution uh, to sanction North Korea. And actually, that resolution was drafted by China. So the US and other countries, they just supported. And Washington at that time was surprised that UN Security Council would pass this uh, uh, sanction uh, bill so quickly. Uh, and another example uh, uh, as, uh, 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 for major power diplomacy is what I already mentioned. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Shanghai Cooperation Organization is actually the first regional institution that China uh, 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 helped uh, uh, create. You know, China and Russia played a major role in creating this regional institution. Today, its headquarters is based in Beijing, and its secretary general is also Chinese. Actually, you know, uh, I think we provide most of the budget for the operation, uh, uh, for the uh, daily operation of this organization. Uh, having said that, uh, the caveat is that major power diplomacy doesn't mean it's major power politics. 
is different. It doesn't mean you will, you know, uh, uh, handle issues in a hand-handed way, you know, uh, unilateral way. But rather, as I mentioned, it means more active, more independent, and more creative. And uh, actually, it requires more cooperation with other countries rather than you know unilateral approach to the issues. And then the last new thinking would be to be a responsible power. Uh, one year and a half ago, the former U.S. Uh, um, Deputy Secretary of State Bob Dolik, uh made a famous speech in New York about in New York about relations with China, in which he t he said, you know, in the past 20 years, U.S. policy was trying to integrate China into the international system. Now China is already fully integrated. So the next stage of U.S. policy with China would be to encourage China to be a responsible stakeholder and uh, cooperating with the United States and other countries to help maintain and improve the international, the existing international system in which we are all uh, uh, beneficiaries. So China should not join the international system as a free rider. Now you should do more things uh, 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 to help maintain and improve the international system. In China, this thinking about responsible country uh, 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 dates back to 1997-98 Asian financial crisis, when China uh, 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 tried to maintain a, a stable uh, Chinese currency without devaluating it, and also providing this kind of uh, bailout uh, uh, arrangement to uh, crisis striking countries like Thailand or, or Indonesia. So at that time, for the first time, our neighbors uh, began to say, you know, a rising China may not be a threat. It could be also a responsible power uh, and can present a lot of opportunities to us. So before that, our leaders keep convincing our neighbors that China will not be a threat. But this kind of rhetoric didn't work very well. You know, people still talk about China's threat. But after the financial crisis, you know, without China convincing those countries, they began to say, you look, maybe a rising China can create more opportunities for us. So then, you know, drawing on this episode, China began to think seriously about uh, if you want to convince your neighbors that the rest of China is a good thing, maybe you should do more things rather than, you know, to talk to them uh, uh, in that way. And uh, today, I think we have more uh, systemic thinking about how to be a responsible role. And uh, they would break it down in several dimensions. One, as a country with one-fifth of the population in the world, first thing is that you, st you maintain your socio-political stability at the same time uh, uh, achieve high economic growth so that keep improving the living standard of your people, reducing the number of, uh, uh, reducing the poverty and raising the living standard of your people. So that is your number one priority uh, uh, to be a responsible power. And second, uh, China should do more to contribute to Asian peace and stability, such as the role China has been playing on the Korean nuclear issue. The third would be to promote regional economic cooperation and integration, as I already mentioned, 10 plus 3, and also East Asian community building. So uh, uh, 
so that you know when your economy is rising, you also make sure you will share the benefits with your neighbors, and you are not pursuing a zero sum game, but a win win game. Uh, so that's third, fourth, uh, to provide assistance to the least developed countries, uh, uh, mostly of course in Africa. So starting in the last several years, China began to provide more zero uh, uh, interest loans and also pardon uh, their debts to China and uh, 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 to encourage uh, the investment of Chinese uh, enterprises in Africa, you know, all these things. Of course, we also have our interests uh, in, uh, in, in Africa as well. Uh, fifth, to play an active role in international organizations like the United Nations. Uh, for example, peacekeeping operations. I think today China sends more uh, peacekeeping uh, personnel uh, than any other uh, uh, permanent Security Council countries do. You know, U.S., France, uh, Russia, or, or, or Britain. China sends more personnel than each of them does. U.S. used to send more peacekeeping uh, personnel during the Clinton administration, but I guess the Bush administration was not that interested. So China, you know, can boast is the number one country among the permanent five contributing to international uh, uh, peacekeeping operations, authorized, of course, authorized by the United Nations. And uh, in Washington, some people began to talk about the possibility of China sending some troops to Iraq to help the U.S. Uh, I guess that would be difficult. Uh, uh, uh. And finally, uh, also, you know, China wants to... Uh, advocate some new norms for international uh, 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 politics in the 21st century. For example, we, we advocate for the multipolarization of international politics, for the democratization and legalization of international politics. And also we advocate for the new security concept. The core of the new security concept is that let's pursue common security rather than absolute security, because no absolute security. If you are security, other countries are not security, then you cannot really get absolute security. So the best way to make yourself safe is also to make others safe. Uh, so this is what we call the new security concept featured by uh, mutual trust, uh, uh, mutual benefit, dialogue, and cooperation. And uh, also we talk about today how to build a harmonious, harmonious world why we talk about a harmonious world? It has to do with uh, September 11th and the war on terrorism. Because, you know, sometimes people tend to believe, if, even if, if not openly, maybe at the bottom of the heart, that the assumption about clash, clash of civilizations may be true. Some civilizations may be more, you know, inclined to, you know, uh, uh, violence in international relations. And China uh, rejects this notion, saying that we should avoid linking uh, uh, terrorism to one specific culture or civilization. So we should try to create an international environment in which all the civilizations they can coexist harmoniously, drawing on the strengths of others, you know, um, so that uh, your efforts to fight terrorism we are not end up creating actually more uh, uh, terrorist threats. 
So that's what we are talking about, uh, harmonious world. And uh, of course, you know, that's still very much uh, an, uh, a concept. You need a lot of uh, uh, substance to, to fill in uh, this framework. So with that, I think I should stop here. And uh, the floor is open for questions and comments, criticism, attack, whatever. Yes, please. Would you talk more about the issue that concerns a lot of people, which is the Taiwan issue? Mm -hmm. um, where is that likely to go? And is uh, China going to continue to wallow in ancient history as opposed to mm -hmm. uh, sort of realizing what's happened in Taiwan over the last 50 years? Mm -hmm. uh, I think today, uh, in the past three years, there was a rethinking about the Taiwan issue especially since the year 2000, when the DPP, I mean, which is a, a pro-independence party, won the power in Taiwan. So that forced China to rethink about its approach to the Taiwan issue. And uh, one part of the uh, 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 thinking, rethinking is, uh, what does Taiwan identity mean? And how can we you know, accommodate the Taiwan identity uh, with, at the same time, we still try to promote uh, unified China. So that means we need to understand more about how the ordinary people, especially in the south part of the island, what they think about themselves and about the mainland. And actually, uh, I think this has created some adjustments in our Taiwan policy, which have been uh, uh, quite uh, 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 obvious in the last several years. Uh, today, our slogan is that we should try to win the minds and hearts of the people in Taiwan. In the past, we tried to encourage Taiwan businessmen to invest in the mainland. We think when they make more money, they will, you know, naturally be more pro-independence. But then we realized that, you know, these people, the only small portion of the population in Taiwan. You know, uh, if you really want to win mind hearts of the people, you have to reach out to the ordinary people to make them feel that good relations across the Taiwan Street would also benefit them as well, not just the Taiwan businessman investing in the Chinese mainland. So in the last two years, we came up with over 30 uh, uh, new policies, uh, mainly you know, to how to, you know, uh, for example, uh, to promote agricultural cooperation. Uh, across the Taiwan Street. If ta in Taiwan, if there is a surplus, a big harvest of banana, and they cannot see it otherwise, so we will make a decision, you know, to import those uh, uh, bananas so that the farmers in Taiwan feel that, you know, the mainland is uh, uh, taking into account their, their, their personal uh, interests. Of course, we also want to send them pandas, but the, the, at this moment, Chen Shui Bian administration rejected. They are very afraid of pandas. They think they are not really pandas. They are Beijing's weapons for unified front. So they rejected the penetration of pandas uh, to the island. But they st we still pushing, giving them, please take them, you know. We are ready to present them. We already, uh, you know, pick up the two pandas and give them uh, very lovely names. You know, everything is ready for them to pick up them. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, what if that fails, though? I mean, I mean that is just one part of the uh, uh, approaches to the Taiwan issue. Uh, I think we have to take a long-term approach to the Taiwan issue. 
and uh, uh, you come up with more uh, uh, favorable policies uh, uh, to the Taiwan businessmen and farmers is one thing. But also, I think the mainland should also keep improving itself uh, socially, uh, in terms of socioeconomic development to make people on the other side of the street feel comfortable. You know, they say, you know, let's have a closer economic, uh, economic uh, uh, political association. So it's not just a one-way approach. So I think the PRC also has to keep improving itself uh, 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 in various ways so that you can make yourself attractive, not just, you know, threatening uh, 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 to the people on the island. So uh, 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 that's something uh, uh, we are also uh, uh, aware of. Aware of. Uh, yes, please. Yeah. The, um, I have two questions. Uh, they're not related, uh, but I think this might be my only opportunity to get them out, so I'm going to give them to you both at the same time. Yeah. First question Does China um, gain or lose by the um, development or regression of Chinese studies in foreign countries? Uh, Europe is going through a surge in the development of Chinese studies. Mm -hmm. Fifteen, I guess. Fifteen. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so let's leave Afghanistan aside for a second. Uh, how does China's uh, very complex relationships uh, with those other fourteen countries uh, influence its approach to its relations with the uh, great Western powers? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, on your first question, uh, uh, Fudan University two years ago. Um, uh, had a conference on um, the uh, overseas studies of contemporary China. And we examined the study of contemporary China in Europe, Japan, and the United States. And uh, the papers presented to the conference have been uh, published as a book in the United States, actually, just came out. So we want to understand how the major three places where you, know, you have strong China study programs, uh, how they have been pursuing China studies. Uh, I think we want to promote China studies uh, overseas so that people can have better understanding of China. At the official level, um, some of you may have noted the building of the uh, establishment of the Confucius School. You know, uh, we began to set up this in the United States as well. We started uh, in Europe, I guess. So the Confucius School is mainly for the teaching, as I understand, Chinese language, Kung Fu, you know, you know, the traditional Chinese arts, music, all kind of things. Not, not so much about the, you know, the, the, the Chinese politics or, 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 or diplomacy, but, but gradually, you know, trying to, to uh, 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 evoke people's interest in China. So that has been our agenda for, of diplomacy. Uh, when we think about soft power in diplomacy, so that's part of it. Uh, part of the reason I ask this question is that China has benefited immensely from uh, doing business in Australia, mm -hmm. precisely at a time when Chinese studies are falling apart from Australia. And this implies mm -hmm. that China benefits when people know less uh, about China. Well, I don't see if there 
is a connection between these two. We are, uh, we are, I would think uh, it other way because uh, at Fudan, because I'm uh, responsible for international exchange program, recently we have more partners in Australia than previously. You know, uh, in the past, you know, we sort of, we are far away from each other. But today we feel much closer because of the robust economic, a very robust economic ties. And, uh, you know, universities in Australia, they also, you know, come to us say, you know, how about we have some corporations, you know, sending students to Shanghai and you send students to Canberra or this way. So uh, my personal experience is the other way, you know, there seems, you know, Australia is more interested in seeking this kind of uh, cooperation with China. Uh, so, uh, uh, so I cannot say whether we benefit uh, uh, from it or not, uh, but we certainly, I certainly believe that uh, the more and better people understand us, uh, uh, the better to, deal, uh, to, to handle bank relations. So that's my belief. Um, uh, and uh, with regard to your second question, um, I think this is very uh, 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 complicated. Uh, it's kind of issue-driven. Uh, for example, on the North Korean nuclear issue, right? Uh, on this issue, we have more cooperation with the United States, right? Even though North Korea, you know, is a long-term ally of, the, of China, of course, a very, a very difficult ally, uh, if we are still allies at all, but very difficult. So on this issue, China and the U.S. have more common ground than between China and, uh, and North Korea. Then on the issue of... Uh, South Asia. I mean, in the past several years, the Bush administration is trying, has been trying to uh, uh, reach out to India, you know, develop better relations with India. And presumably, you know, uh, using a Indian to, to, to balance a rising China. But at the same time, in the last several years, China-India relations also have improved a lot, right? This month, you will have a joint Navy exercise with India, Navy. But this Indian Navy on the way to the U.S., actually they are going to stop in Shanghai to have a joint Navy exercise with China as well. So in that sense, this kind of, you know, a, a traditional major power game doesn't have to be zero sum. It could be, you know, win-win game. Because China and India, they also have the interests in battle relations, economically, politically, and on the security front. And China has already said, you know, we would support India as a member of the UN Security Council, a permanent member, because India is a developing country. And with the, now the, you know, China is the only developing country uh, as a, a, a permanent members of UN Security Council. We need more developing countries. So in that regard, so I don't think, you know, they are contradictory with each other. Uh, in Southeast Asia, as I mentioned, when China, you know, uh, came up with the idea of China ASEAN free trade arrangement. We are going to achieve that by the year 2010. I think that got uh, uh, some people in Washington very nervous. And what they cried is that you know the Chinese are eating our lunch in Southeast Asia, because they assume that traditionally U.S. had had more influence in Southeast Asia. But on the Bush administration, because of the war on terrorism, because of war in Iraq, you know all these things, U.S. At least in the first Bush administration, it didn't pay much attention 
or not paying due attention to Southeast Asia. At the same time, China is improved relations with Southeast Asia. So that draws some concern from the United States. So I think these are very uh, complicated issues, you know, country-specific, issue-specific. Uh, Rick, you want to be the... Okay, uh, right on the back, yeah. Uh, very good question. I mean, our leaders, uh, when our leader met your leader, we all say, you know, to deal with our best relations, we should have uh, uh, take a long-term strategic view to think about it. Then it ended up realizing, we re ended up realizing that U.S. leader usually only think in terms of four years or even shorter. How can you ask this leader to think about 10 years, 20 years for best relations? So we began to realize that, you know, there's some limit to this kind of uh, uh, desire for long-term strategic view. You know, sometimes they think very, you know, uh, according to your domestic agenda, very short term, six months, three months, you know, uh, very much agenda-driven, you know, right? So this is one um, difficulty we have encountered. And another difficulty, of course, is uh, uh, Congress. So West State Department or the uh, Department of Commerce come to China and pressure China on one thing, and China would explain, explain to them the Chinese positions or difficulties. They would say, you know, yes, we understand it, but our Congress doesn't agree, you know. They would push us. So sometimes it's like kind of uh, good guy, bad guy, you know, you know. So, uh, and it's effective. And uh, in negotiating uh, with other countries, not just China, right? So you can just say, you know, I'm very rational, but the Congress is crazy. So you have to be careful, you know, you have to behave. Um, and uh, now we, we think in the future we may, we may view this as kind of a useful formula that China can borrow, you know, <laughs> in negotiating with the United States, right? Uh, yes, please. Well, I think at this stage it's still very uh, delicate and fragile. Uh, we decided to reach out to uh, Shinzo Abe uh, on the assumption that he wouldn't uh, uh, visit uh, Yasukuni Shrine. I mean, there was some understanding uh, uh, in advance. Actually, four, three, three months before Shinzo Abe uh, was elected, his wife visited Beijing. So I don't know whether he sent his wife as a special envoy or something like that. But certainly, you know, that would allow us to have a better understanding about Shinzo Abe, about his position or relation with China. So when he came to power, we uh, decided to engage him and encourage him uh, not to go to the uh, Yasukuni Shrine. 
So, so far, uh, he has been doing uh, pretty well. So next month, uh, our premier will visit Japan. So certainly, he will not go to the shrine before the visit of our uh, premier. And then I we will invite him to visit China formally. Uh, uh, last time, that was informal visit. So then we think he will not go to the shrine before he comes to China, right? So I think we can somehow you know, develop a kind of uh, uh, agenda-driven approach to this issue. And uh, gradually, if he can uh, uh, benefit uh, from a better relation with China uh, to increase his uh, uh, political capital in improved relations with China, then you know, why should he choose to go to the uh, uh, Yaskuni Shrine at all? You know, politicians, they all calculate about you know, where uh, the major political capitals come from. So I think we are uh, 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 taking a more sophisticated approach uh, uh, to him. But still, you know, uh, he came from a very conservative background. And in Japan, used to have very strong pressure uh, on him on the history issue. And uh, I mean, the recent comment on the comfort of women uh, is one example. Uh, coming from Washington, I learned that the House is going to pass a resolution on this issue after his visit to Washington. He will visit Washington in, in May. So the House will, will do it in a polite way. They will pass it anyway, but it will be after his visit. So, so I, I think he, I hope he will become more sensitive to, to this issue. Because at the end of the day, to, uh, to address this issue, uh, history issue appropriately, that will help enhance Japan's international reputation and international prestige. That goes to, that serves Japan's national interest. I mean, remember uh, two years ago when Japan bid for the UN Security Council permanent members, how many votes they got from Asia? How many countries supported Japan's bid in Asia, you know? Two. One is Afghanistan, because it relies a lot of support of aid from Japan. The other is Sri Lanka, you know. Other than that, none. But Japan is an Asian country. So if there are only two Asian countries supporting you, that means your Asian diplomacy is not that successful, if not a total failure. So I think they should, uh, they, they, they should uh, learn from it. You know, politicians are politicians, but they still have to think about their national interests, not just your own political legacy, your political belief, you know, because you're not, not just responsible for yourself, right? Uh, yes, uh, right. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a question about uh, you seem to talk a, a lot about the structural factors like uh, China's economic integration and uh, the more powerful China's mature power. I, I would like to uh, uh, see more the macro level. Mm -hmm. what, what the source of this kind of rethinking? According to my uh, observation, it seems that there is some generation gap uh, in, in Chinese IR community. Like when I was uh, a freshman in China University, we read uh, either Marxist uh, discourse or realist discourse of international relations. But yeah. now it yeah. seems that there are huge, diverse. Mm -hmm. There are liberalism, there are constructivism. Many young scholars are very enthusiastic about diverse uh, discourse mm -hmm. of international mm -hmm. How this kind of uh, diverse uh, new Discourse put uh, into the practice mm -hmm. of China's uh, diplomacy. Uh, I think your observation is uh, by and large correct. I mean, teaching at Fudan on international relations, 
I can feel the shifting interest of our students majoring in international relations. You know, we started to read books by Hans Mortensen and, uh, and these people. You know, we were uh, uh, strong believers in uh, uh, realism. But then, with the end of Cold War, what was uh, more uh, popular in China was uh, neoliberalism. We began to talk about you know uh, 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 neoliberal uh, institutions, you know, uh, interdependence, and uh, we got people like Joe Nye, these people, to teach at Fudan. But in the last five years, you know. It shifted to uh, uh, constructivism, where now you know, Ohio State is really you know the center of that. We all read the book by by uh, by weight. You know, the uh, we have now three uh, Chinese versions of that book. Uh, you know, uh, uh, identity on the identity and you know, constructivism these issues. You know, the students like them. So certainly, this affects the way we think about international politics. And uh, if you if you look at China's new diplomacy, it's more in the direction of neoliberalism. You believe in globalization, you believe in uh, regional integration, you believe in international cooperation. Uh, this still, you know, of course, the factor of balanced power, you know, uh, issues. But overall, you know, uh, I think now the predominant trend is liberalism plus constructivism in China's IR circle. And then they will spear over into the policy circle because these guys, they graduate from Fudan University or Peking University or other universities, you know. They were trained against this background and then they will begin to think about China's uh, uh, foreign policies and diplomacy in a very different uh, uh, theoretical and conceptual uh, 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 perspectives. So that's how you know, Rick, you know, we can really uh, uh, affect the policy levels, right? Even though indirectly. <laughs> uh, we also invited John Mia Shamer to Fudan, actually. Uh, no, of course he's not. I mean, we also pay attention to the traditional uh, realism. You know, one of my colleagues at Fudan, you may remember him, uh, Wang Yiwei. You know, also participated in dialogue. He translated uh, John Mia Shamer's book into Chinese. And then we invited him to Fudan to teach one month. And then the students feel very, very uncomfortable with his theory, you know, because he always talk about major po- the, the tra- tragedy of major power politics. It sounds like we are still in the 19th century. So we feel sorry for that. Then we quickly invited uh, uh, Joseph Knight to teach at Fudan. You know, to 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 keep a balance. You know, <laughs> right? Uh, yes, please. Uh, in a way, this question follows up on, on this discussion. I guess I'm, I'm struck in your presentation between, on the one hand, it seems as if China's foreign policy is very kind of 21st century, a new security concept, multilateralism, global integration, the body friends kind of thing. On the other mm-hmm. hand, something you didn't really emphasize in your talk that, with respect to the defense of the principle of sovereignty, and I'm thinking about Sudan. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, when we talk about China's diplomacy, it's, to f- it's fair to state that there is uh, 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 changes and uh, 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 continuity 
So what today uh, I was supposed to talk about the changes. Why we also see the continuity, like the you know, the traditional concepts about sovereignty and uh, these issues. Um, I think that first has to do with uh, China's own uh, 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 national interest concerns. Uh, not only in Taiwan, but also you know, China. Everyone thinks this is a country country with you know five thousand years history. But if you look at the uh, institution building or a state building, it's really a very new country, founded in 1949, so much younger than the United States. So in terms of a state building, it's still very much in the uh, incipient stage. Uh, so compared with the uh, Western countries, sometimes you feel you are in a kind of inferior position, easily getting the criticism from other countries. You know uh, uh, about the approach to your uh, state building or uh, 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 national building, and then sovereignty sometimes can be used as a kind of a useful shield against external criticism. When people criticize your human rights, right, and you cannot say my human rights record is better than yours, but you say you know don't interfere with my internal affairs, right? So that's a useful way to protect your, your, yourself. Having said that, uh, I think we are uh, sensitive to the evolving uh, notion of sovereignty. And actually, if you look at China's uh, joining WTO and other international organizations, which requires require a compromise of your sovereignty. And at the practical level, level China has already, you know, after balancing, after balancing the gain and the lose, it has already agreed to, to compromise some of its sovereignty in that sense. But at conceptual level, uh, we seem to be uh, uh, lagging behind the reality. And this issue is also under the scrutiny of both the policy and academic elite in China. They are thinking about the issue, especially you know, when there are some uh, uh, big uh, uh, events you know, uh, 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 that got China involved, like Sudan, you know, whether China's foreign aid should be attached to some conditions. Uh, regarding you know the good governance you know human rights, or it should be you know we just give you this assistance no matter how you run your country. Uh, I think there are some rethinking going on there, and uh, it will take some time that finally it comes to the policy level that okay we have a new uh, concept of our sovereignty. But I think uh, the debate and rethinking uh, is going on there. It's going on there. Uh, maybe this is the last question? Yeah. yeah. Uh, mm. I, let me put it this way. In the United States, there's some simplistic attitude that Chinese diplomacy is heavily influenced by the need for energy resources. Mm -hmm. um, you read in the popular press in the United States mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. China's African policy, mm -hmm. to a great extent, mm -hmm. is due to it, China's need of the resources mm -hmm. and energy mm -hmm. in Africa. Mm -hmm. How do the Chinese look upon this question? Mm -hmm. Obviously, it needs energy. Everybody knows that. Right. But to right. what extent does it influence Chinese diplomacy? Well, I mean, uh, uh, energy is the newly added driving force behind China's diplomacy in the last several years. That's for sure. But that doesn't mean that this is the only thing uh, 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 behind our diplomacy. And uh, I mean, I can easily point to several issues that I, which which have nothing to do with uh, uh, energy. You know. China's role on the North Korean nuclear issue, right? For North Korea, maybe this is an energy issue for them, but not for us. 
right? And uh, then if you, if you think about China's relations with Southeast Asia, that has nothing to do with energy. And, uh, and also, you know, even in the case of Africa, I think there are three factors behind China's uh, policy towards Africa. One is that we have a traditional good relation with Africa. During the Mao era, you know, when Mao you know, tried to support the, you know, the Third World Revolution, so we already forged very strong ties with Africa. Uh, and the second, of course, is the uh, requ uh, request, the quest for uh, energy, uh, raw materials, and a market in Africa. The third is the political consideration. That means if China is going to be, uh, be behave as a major power, you should uh, do more in providing assistance to the least developed countries in Africa uh, so that you can not only improve your international image, but also actually to maintain the political support from those African countries when it comes to the issues on human rights or Taiwan. These countries will support China. So you have political consideration. And I, I guess in the case of Japan's bidding for, UN, for the permanent seat in UN Security Council, I guess all the 44 African countries supported the Chinese position, not the Japanese position. So, so it's, it's, it's more than energy, you know. So as a big country, you know, you look at your international relations in a more comprehensive way. So with that, yes. thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Hu Jinbao has a plane back to Washington this afternoon. You know, I grew up studying the Soviet Union in the 70s and early 80s, and we used to have dialogues like these. But they weren't like this at all. I mean, the level of straightforward and uh, honest explication of your position as well as the conceptual sophistication. I hope you can see the dialogue we've been having with the Chinese is nothing like I grew up with, we used to have with the Russians. It's been a wonderful experience, and I hope we can build on it uh, between Mershan and Fudan. Thank you very much. Thank you.